Welcome to LCF Unfiltered. I'm your host, Ro, an LCF women's wear alumni with a passion for change. As a person of color in the fashion and creative industry, I have seen and experienced firsthand how we are often overlooked, misunderstood and mistreated. We see a lack of diversity in high positions within the industry. Racism is a widespread social problem. However, the structure of the fashion industry makes it harder to raise issues around representation, racism and inclusivity. Because of this, we have to put our best foot forward and let our strongest voices be heard. And this is exactly what LCF Unfiltered is all about. It's the opportunity to build a safe space for POC creatives without judgment or expectation and to give a platform to each of these voices whilst highlighting the talent and skill that is often undervalued. With the possibility of hearing from the few influential names we look up to in the industry, we as a community can learn, educate and understand together. This is not a podcast to counsel or to exclude anyone. Instead, it's a chance for us to demand change. Is POC creatives to be unapologetically themselves whilst addressing those sensitive topics we face and demanding change within the fashion industry. I am your host, Ro, and today we're going to be discussing the ins and outs of the fashion industry from education to creation with Jeremiah Osei So our guest today is Jeremiah, who I am so excited to introduce, as I've personally been dying to talk to you ever since I watched his thought-provoking TED Talk, addressing labels and how we as individuals are viewed and perceived based on how we look or even sound. So hi, Jeremiah. Thank you so much for joining us today. You're welcome. It's lovely to be here. So for the people who don't know who you are or anything to do with your work, would you mind introducing yourself and what you do? Of course. So... I have worked in the industry for more than 17 years. I initially started off as a fashion designer and grew from what grew to a publisher where I published luxury books um, about fashion and magazines, of course. And I opened a consultancy and now I've just qualified as a fashion psychologist. So my uh, endeavours now is to rebuild my former media company um, where I'll, I am currently working on a new publication, print publication, and open a new consultancy and platform. That's amazing. I mean, definitely all-rounder that you have covered. <laughs> um, so has, you know, being a creative, has this always been the path for you or did you start out with something else and you fell into this line? Uh, yes and no. So... I've always loved uh, loved clothes, anyway. So ever since I was young, I've always loved that, and I've always loved art. And for me, fashion is just an extension of art. So um, it was something that I always wanted to pursue. But coming from an African background, my family wanted us to pursue trade. So, for instance, my twin brother was encouraged to pursue accounting. I was encouraged to pursue technology and IT. But I think one of the major factors that contributed to, I would say, my resistance was racism because I grew up in a very, very, very racist town. And as a result of that, it impeded on my self-esteem. So the only way in which I felt equal to others was to be better than them, if that makes sense. Yeah. So that was perhaps one of my motivations in terms of starting a business at the age of 17 and uh, continuing from there. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely the case. I think 
as a person of colour, when it comes to racism, it's almost like you can't be on the same level as someone else. You either have to be better or there's no point mm. in doing it is the way you're seen. Um, so yeah, that's really interesting. Thank you. Um, so obviously on the lines of racism, how do you think that racism within fashion has affected you? Like, do you think it's something that has, like you said, obviously pushed you harder, but do you think you're in a better place now because of it or a worse place now because of it? Uh, so that's interesting. Um, I have more, multiple perspectives on that. Um, okay, so has it impacted me? If it has, it hasn't deterred me. Um, and I have not personally noticed it. And I think that's more due to my my own um, psychology. I, I, I like to be told no. So um, if I'm told no, I would pursue it. So I can't say that I noticed it directly, but mm. like I said, it may have transpired. And um, so I often have this discussion with my friends anyway, and I always say to them that they can't separate fashion from social influence. Mm -hmm. So, for instance, if you consider the industry, um, for instance, um, slimness, so if society said, okay, well, we want to be slim, and the industry gave us size zero, okay, When the, when society said that they wanted a better representation of um, the population, they gave us an array of models in different body shapes. And I think 2020 gave us a, a good example of that. So, for instance, the Black Lives Matter movement. As a result of that, the industry uh, featured a lot of um, ethnic models and made references to Black Lives Matter on the September issue, which had never been done before. So for me, um, the industry does not dictate, it's dictated to, and we are the dictators. Yeah. So I think that if we really want to see change in, this, in the industry, we have to change first. Yeah, I think that's, a, I mean, a, a great way to look at it. I think a lot of people forget that, that it's not always how things are, it's how we make it. So what to like, so mm. say, um, what would you say would be, you know, a great way to like make the change as like an individual or how do we go about that? So again, maybe many would disagree with me on this, but I think it really has to do with our own mentality. Mm. So for instance, I, I've never believed that there was only one window of opportunity that's opened. I think that as people of colour, we tend to believe that the only window of opportunity that's open is the one open for the Western society or the most dominant social group. Mm -hmm. I think that, yes, historically, we have had a few people of colour go through the same window and they've had to hold that window ajar for others to get through. But at the same time, I think we need to understand that we as a group are very powerful, we are very wealthy, we're very talented, and that if that window is closed or that door is closed, we can go through another um, one that's open for us. Yeah. No, I I think that's great. I mean, I know a couple of episodes ago, I had the lovely Ashley on and he said that as people of colour, we have to remember that sometimes there's not always a seat at the table for us. So you have to create your own. Um, I think, yeah, that that's something that we all do forget a lot that. You know, there are so many spaces, especially in this industry, for people that we are not recognised for or we just don't get the opportunity for. But 
mm-hmm. we shouldn't let that hold us back and put us in this little box. So if we can't reach that, then that's the end of. Exactly. So, I mean, you know, I, I also find it works both ways. While I will concede that a lot of talented people of colour have been overlooked or not, not recognised, but it has also worked to the advantage of those who've been successful. So I'm not sure if you are familiar with the concept or the theory of marked identity. Are you? Yes, I have, yeah. So, so just for the listeners, so in essence, that theory talks about how the identity becomes more marked, more deviates from the most dominant identity in society, which is Caucasian, heterosexual, male, Christian, and so on. Okay, so the more the identity deviates from that, the more marked it becomes. And we see this a lot in the judiciary system, whereby two people from two different groups commit the same crime, but the actions of those who are emphasized is more penalized by virtue of that. And I found that in the industry, those who've been successful, again, people of color who have have a marked identity, their work and their actions have also become overemphasized, not overemphasized, but emphasized more so than their counterparts because of their race. So it does also work both ways, I think. Oh yeah, completely it does. I just think um, for a lot of people, because they don't look at it in that way, they focus Mm. on, I guess, the biggest aspects that affect that that they feel affect them so they forget that side that it is both sided um so yeah, yeah. it's more difficult absolutely yes completely but, um we get there we get there <laughs> we do so i recently watched your ted talk episode um how was that experience for you uh overwhelming very overwhelming because i naturally have a aversion to speaking in front of large groups of people yeah in actual fact I was supposed to speak at my sister's wedding a few months before and the moment the microphone was put in my direction my name was called I declined because I I have a lot of social anxiety believe it or not yeah so the experience itself was interesting um but I, I've not watched it yet because I made several mistakes. So I You um, wouldn't even notice, honestly. <laughs> I I lost my call when they informed me that um twenty-seven thousand people were watching online. So wow. I was only deep with the two hundred in front of me. And yeah. Uh, but yeah, I um I dropped the ball. Yeah, I feel like that's something they should tell you at the very end. Yeah. <laughs> not throughout. Um, so, you know, what you said through that really made me think about how we are perceived, especially within the fashion industry, not only, you know, as creatives, but as people of colour. So I don't know if you want to just explain a little bit more about what you basically said on there for the listeners, just so they get a little bit of understanding what we're talking about. So I spoke about um, social identity and stereotypes and social representations and our predilection um, of attaching social meanings to labels. And I gave three examples about race, mental health and sexual identity. And I explained how and why we do that society. Perfect. So, you know, you mentioned as well throughout about mental health within your uh, TED talk. Mm. And I'm just interested in getting your opinion of how you view your view on mental health, not only in the black community, but also in the fashion community. Yeah, so um, in general, I think that as a society, we are addressing the uh, concerns of mental health, but 
I have a fear it will prove fruitless because of the fact that when we speak about mental health, we speak about it as an umbrella. And primarily, we are addressing stress, depression, and anxiety when there are hundreds, if not thousands, of mental health conditions. Um, I think that historically, the Black community has um, treated it as the unspoken of by virtue of the fact that it's seen as a shame. However, in more recent years, Black people, I'm not sure if you know this, are diagnosed more severely than any other race. So I think now that that's become more apparent, the Black community have become more privy to mental health. Um, in terms of the industry, so I would say this had the biggest impact for me because when I became unwell, or should I say, if you consider the fashion industry itself, it um, maintains everything that is socially valued, such as beauty, um, health, wealth, and anything that sends out social signals. And one of the biggest issues I have is that I am a perfectionist, not in the general terms, I am diagnosed as a perfectionist. So when I became unwell, um, I felt that I was no longer able to embody the best version of myself or what the industry desired. So I generally went into exile. So when I did my TED talk, that was me re-emerging to say to everybody, okay, here I am, because I have a lot of people uh, <laughs> wondering where I went. So. I mean, it's a perfect way to do it with that many people watching as well. <laughs> Absolutely. So I only have to say it once. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Just resend out that link to everyone and you're all good but no that's um it's interesting how obviously we have such big impacts within both industry like within both communities even so um mm. and they do tend to be like or they have previously been looked over I mean we see that from big designers who Absolutely. face such mental mind games and no one even notices or they hide it so well because they're in the spotlight and you don't realize that and I think that's something that people forget when you go to university especially as a fashion university how much stress there is and what things can cause and what you may not mm. realize that you already may suffer with that gets brought out and there is such big but this is such a big part of your life, university, how it affects you um, within the industry that Absolutely. it's just like you're thrown in the deep end and completely confused by it all and lost as to what's happening to yourself. So yeah. I, I think it's great that when we get a chance to hear from people like yourself, you can explain their story and, you know, explain their life, really, that we can, you know, resonate with you and feel like, OK, yeah, this is normal this isn't like we're not the outcasted black sheep there's no reason this has just happened to me and no one else so I, you know I thank you for being someone that's you know gone out there and spoken about themselves thank you very much that's nice to say yeah it's, it's just very important you know it's just one of those things that we definitely need more of um so I know you're currently studying at LCF how have you found this so I yeah, I, I enjoyed myself. I was very excited because, um, as I mentioned, I was 17 when I started my fashion label. And at that time, I had a seamstress working with me to develop my collections. And I actually called um, London College of Fashion and I spoke to someone in the admissions office. And I said, look, I'm 17. I have uh, a seamstress working for me. I 
feel like I need to learn. I want to come to the university. And I'm not sure if the person I spoke to was in a bad mood, but she said, well, you seem to be doing what we will teach you here. So why do you want to come? So that really, uh, but that always stuck with me. That really yeah. And it deterred me actually from ever pursuing an education in fashions. And that's hence why I pursued it myself. Yeah. I've always believed that um, experience is the best educator. But if I'm going to be honest, at that age, I needed education uh, to help me. And so I think my experience uh, doing my master's in uh, psychology, which is something which I've always loved, and having the opportunity to combine both fashion and psychology um, is certainly a course in the world. So I've been very fortunate in that case. I think um, I know that the university is trying to strive towards diversity. And one of the areas which I've spoken about previously is um, producing their own literature because as a psychologist, we have to look at um, a multitude of literature, but our, our industry is dominated by Western standards and Western yeah. uh, psychologists. And I think that if the university wants to maintain that or main, align their attitudes with their behavior, they should produce the content, their own literature for um, their students from which they learn and incorporate different um, psychologists from different backgrounds and ethnicities and sexual orientations and even sexes. Yeah, no, I I agree with that. I mean, I know personally for myself when I was studying there and when it comes to writing your dissertation for a lot of POC people, you know, they we do tend to write things that are familiar to home and personal Mm -hmm. to us. But nine times out of 10, we will get a... Um, a tutor or someone that helped like an advisor for our dissertation who doesn't really understand or can't refer us to the right literature that will help us so I yeah I think that's such an amazing idea and will be so useful and important to us for reasons such as that so yeah I think that's definitely something that would be ideal there that needs to be put hopefully they take feed in that (laughs) yeah hopefully well we can only see what happens um do you feel that since studying at LCF that POC people are celebrated enough? Is this something that you've seen? I know we've just had Black History Month um, and there was a little bit going on for that, but how do you feel personally about it? Is it something that you see a lot? Um, I think the university certainly tries to. I will give them that. I don't know if I would concede with the notion that it's celebrated other than Black History Month. Okay, yeah. Uh, in that area, I think from most to true the disciplines within the fashion industry, the university could do a lot better. And I think that one of the ways in which they could do better, and as I mentioned, if they produced their own literature, my former university, for instance, had its own books. So the the research of the scientists that we learned from was produced by the society and by the university. So if, again, if the university wanted to align themselves with their ambition, then they would produce their own content so the students can learn from a variety of designers, stylists, photographers. But um, I think that's perhaps one area which I'd say they are lacking in and hence why I wouldn't agree with the idea that they celebrate people of colour. Yeah, no, I completely agree with you there. Um, I think 
hopefully as the years continue, we will see more changes. We'll see with them doing this big move to Stratford. Maybe, you know, the move will start a push when it comes to that kind of thing. Yes, hope. <laughs> we definitely can hope that. <laughs> so um I seen that you've published books, is that correct? Yeah, so um I was uh, a former publisher, which I'm yeah. starting again. Yeah. Um so I published um the works of other authors, um writers and stylists as well. Okay, cool. So what I know obviously you said, you know, you wanted to basically be the best that you could be from like young, but what made you go into being a publisher? You know, I've never actually been asked this question before, interestingly. Um I so at the time I was living in Milan and I had just produced my last collection and I wanted to advertise in um one of the fashion magazines. So I purchased, I don't know, 10 or 11 um, magazines and I read through them. And I shouldn't say this, I'll probably get in trouble for saying this, but I was underwhelmed by what I read. And it reminded me of um, a thought I had when I was 19, when I was being interviewed by a different magazine. And I naively said to myself, I'm sure I could produce a magazine uh, and almost immediately I said, that's impossible. It's not, I, I could not do that. I, mean, I don't have the resources or the contest whatsoever. But then as I was reading all of them, all of these magazines, I kept seeing advertising after advertising or content, which I felt as a reader, because believe it or not, I don't read fashion magazines myself. I have a few here, but yeah. they've been given to me or, whatsoever. I don't actually read them. And so I spent, this was a Friday, and I said to myself, okay, I'm going to spend this weekend, okay, um, doing the blueprint of a magazine. If I can get my friend Daniel to agree to work with me on this, I would definitely pursue it. And Daniel was this art director who is pursued by every top agency in the world because he does the best designs, work, posters you've ever, he's probably one of the most creative people I've ever met in my life. Yeah, cool, yeah. And so... I spent the entire weekend in my room uh, developing the formation of it, the design, the type of content, the demographic to which I'll target. And on Monday, I I think it was actually Tuesday, to be sincere, I met with Daniel and I said, look, this is the project which I'm interested in. Would you be interested in working with me? And he read it. He said, absolutely. And that's how it started. So a few months later, after I launched my uh, collection I made it my last and I spent six months developing the first issue and I went through all of my contacts and asked them if they'd be interested in contributing and working for me unfortunately I had good friends so they all said yes and um that was it <laughs> it went from there wow I'm so glad I'm the first person to ask you about that too wow <laughs> yeah. that yeah that's great um so how did obviously how did that all go and what happened? So it went really well. Um, I think because the publication itself was unique, and I'm not saying that in a very arrogant way, but even from the type of paper we printed on, the front covers, to, you know, the type of content which we um, featured, because we never, the, the aim was never to sell fashion to consumers, but also to, for them to understand it. And I... Yes, we did cover a lot of Fashion Week. So there's over 100 pages in Fashion Week. But the 
the, the magazine itself spoke about an array of things that were prevalent or pertinent to men's um, men's lives in every day. So, for instance, the first issue talked about beauty. So there's a lot of uh, psychological articles about how beauty impacts perception or opportunities. The next issue spoke about love and, you know, different forms of relationships, you know, infidelity, trinomous relationships, you know, objective, um, I put the word, objective, Objectuality, where people fall in love with objects, for instance. So you spoke about a lot of things, and the design of it was um, very unique. Um, the issue with <laughs> with me during that time was that I I hate to say this in a negative way, but I took the advice of others, and rather than following what I knew how to do best, I listened to um, people I went digital. And upon doing that, I struggled because our readers loved the quality of the publication and it took away the human experience. Yeah. And then the second mistake I made was trying to align myself with some of the biggest publishers. I was trying to compete with the other publishers before advertising. And as a, as a result of that, created another seven magazines when realistically I should just focused on the one. So that I say set me back a little bit and unfortunately as i mentioned i got sick so i immediately closed everything down but in general i'd say that it grew very quickly it was it became well known very quickly particularly in the industry um yeah (laughs) i'm not sure that answers your question no it, it definitely does um but no, I, I can understand what you mean, especially the idea when things like this do go online and they become not so much zines, but you know what I mean? In that sense, it does lose that human in, interaction yeah. and there is nothing nicer than being able to hold something of good quality in your hands and actually mm. be able to sit there and read through it. I think we lose this human experience yeah yeah human experience and there's a beauty behind it the minute that everything goes online like don't get me wrong there's some beautiful zines out there um Mm. i have seen many of them but even so i would still rather hold something in my hands sit down and have that moment to myself to just go through it instead of scrolling on my phone absolutely absolutely that's that's a mistake i will not make twice so even in the new publication which i'm working on it's print it's any print message uh you won't even have a website from which you can read it you the only website for this publication is to subscribe and you can get free issues because it's a free publication so okay great uh, and that's it no content will be featured online at all oh wow so how so you're in the middle of working on this now Yes. How are you finding this whole process? It's different. So it's different. And it takes um, some getting to understand the different models. So, for instance, the former publications I, um, we had were solving bookstores, um, subscriptions only. This one's different because we have a distributor who's going to be handing them out, who's going to be putting them into stores, um, train station, airplanes, uh, airplane lounges, for instance. Uh, and I'm not used to that. And obviously the quantity is a lot higher. Yeah. So 
there's always a constant fear of, okay, you can't make any mistakes. Because even I'm going to be honest, I noticed perhaps in grammar mistakes that were in one of the articles, things like that can't happen because it goes to a much wider audience. So yeah. there's, um, it, it is overwhelming at times, but I think with the partner which we have, my distributor, um, it will be successful. Amazing. Well, I can't wait to see more about it. Can you tell us you. a little bit more in like what it's about or is that like under wraps, top secret? Um, well, <laughs> I, 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 I say it's top secret, but what I would say is that as well as being the publisher, the content which I will uh, produce will be about fashion and psychology. So again, I'm not writing about articles about the latest Gucci bag or what you should go and buy now, but it will be understanding why we consume um, the impacts of fashion as opposed to, or, and maybe even interviews um, with designers. But again, it's not going to be selling anything to the consumer. Okay, um, great. So. I, I think that's amazing. <laughs> I think that is something that people will absolutely love. I mean, mm. there's only so many times you can see what Gucci bag to buy next. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, I think you're definitely onto a winner there. And I'm very, very excited to, you know, Thank you very much. where that goes. Um, so do you have any advice for people who are thinking about going into the creative side of things? Yes, actually, I would say that. So in the past, when I've done interviews, I've said that one could not be good. They had to be great at what they did. Yeah. But I think in, in the age of more competition, fewer opportunities, particularly um, as a result of the pandemic, one could not be, one cannot actually be great. They have to be the best at what they do best. So that, in essence, means finding out what you do unique and exploiting that, as opposed to trying to reinvent the wheel. Once you focus on trying to reinvent the way it turns. Um, that's the advice I'd give because, I, as I mentioned to you previously, I went in trying to reinvent the wheel. We're starting numerous projects and that backfired, mm. um, particularly now, whereby brands launch it's like by week. Um, you have to, rather than trying to compete with something, somebody else, just look at what you do best and, as I mentioned, exploit that. Yeah, I think that's, that's some great advice. So it's definitely what people need to hear. So thank you for that. Um, and then one last question I'll ask you is, where do you see yourself and your work five years down the line? What would you want not only yourself, but the industry to look like for you? Well, um, ideally, I'd like to contribute to this course. So as I did the TED Talk with my book or the Human Rights Organization I launched uh, almost 10 years ago, um, and now as a psychologist, I'd like for people to think <laughs> when they see my work, because a lot of it uh, is uh, thought provoking, particularly with the publication, hence why I can't divulge <laughs> too much of it now. Of but um, I do hope to that my platforms will contribute to change. And um, going back to your question, I think that my media platform hopefully will be something that will provoke change in society hopefully but we'll see hopefully i'm sure it will um i think with you behind it it definitely will so <laughs> we look forward to the next five years and where you'll be so um thank you jeremiah for coming to join us today it's been an absolute pleasure to meet you and to get an insight to your experiences and your views 
if anyone wanted to reach out to you or find out a little bit more about you and your work, where would they find you? Uh, for the moment, I'm just now re-establishing my um, social media um, platforms with my business. But if they wanted to get in contact with me directly, they could do so on Instagram. And my username is Harry's brother. So, okay, perfect. I'll make sure. Brother's name. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, there's so many names on Instagram. Why not? Um, <laughs> Why not? <laughs> Yeah, I'll make sure that's down below. Um, so it's so important for us as a community to really listen to one another in hopes of not only finding people we can relate to and connect with, but learn from to really ensure a better future in fashion for POC. Sometimes you just must take the filter off and demand real change. Thank you for listening to another LCF Unfiltered episode. Be sure to visit LCF or myself on Instagram to join in the conversation and get involved. Until next time. Thank you for listening to the first series of LCF Unfiltered. I've really enjoyed chatting to our previous guests and have found this entire experience incredibly inspiring. These conversations have helped me to build upon my own identity and understanding of the hurdles we can sometimes face as a person of colour in the creative arts. Please join us for the next series of LCF Unfiltered, where I'll be joined by some recognisable names from the industry. We will chat about how both their personal and professional journeys have led them to where they are today. Thanks and see you next time.